Welcome back to Classical Things You Should Know. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and I'm here with... Graham Donaldson. And today we're going to talk about the Iliad, but I feel like we need to have a little time just to sort of get to know us, because you don't know us that well at all. So it's been summer, and we've both been sort of reading and going to conferences, and I've been swimming a ton. It's good. And Graham took up running. I did. Jogger's got a jog. Jogger's got a jog. I ran last night, and it was the 4th of July, and I got to see a few fireworks and tried to dodge all the cars as I didn't know which ones contained drunk Americans and which ones didn't. Mm, mm-hmm. Probably most cars last night. Yeah. Is is the 4th of July weird for you as a Canadian? Very. It's a little strange. Um, I have taken to ask people why we celebrate it, and they say, oh, because Americans independent. And I say, okay, so in 1776... Um, was, was the war done or was the war starting? And a lot of people had to check Wikipedia yesterday. Turns out they, they, uh, did it partway through the war. So the war started like in the sixties and then the war didn't end until the eighties. So this was like 10 years into the war. They're like, we should probably make this official. We should probably make this Facebook (laughs) official. It's like that relationship that's been going on for a long time. And you're like, it's time to tell the friends. Exactly. So, um, but actually, but what this past fourth, what I just realized is I don't really know a whole much, a whole lot about the actual history of that war for independence more than just sort of what's hanging out in like the popular ethos. And I, I'm, that's not good enough. I need to like actually go and read a book about who was Washington and, and what was happening in the colonies and that kind of stuff. Cause in Canada, we have none of this in Canada. It's just like the British were like, well, this is bloody cold. Let's get, cold up here. <laughs> let's get it. Let's, uh, and then, so like whoever wants There's to stay, not enough can stay. Tea in the world exactly. to make us want to survive. Here. Whoever wants to stay can stay. And those people ended up being called Canadians. And um, the rest sort of left and went back to England. So that's so Canada. We celebrate our Independence Day, where we like tell the Queen we're like appreciative of her. And so you say that is that actually a thing? No. Do you really have Independence Day? We have Canada Day, and Canada Day is way less interesting than Independence Day. Canada Day is the day when there was like three colonies in Canada, or they're called dominions, and it was New Brunswick, which is a province, Nova Scotia, so these are East Coast provinces, not too big, and then the rest of the country, which is huge, is called Canada. And all three of those things, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Canada, all got mushed together in like the 1860s to become the Dominion of Canada. And that... So big, the Canada won. The, so Canada, yes, Canada won. <laughs> Canada won over the other two. We, we, the Dominion of Canada means that we are dominated by England, and that's what we celebrate on July 1st. <laughs> Um, there's, there's later on history where we become our own country and, you know, similar to the Australia and similar to the India, although we never really had a like uprising where we fought off the British. Like I said, they just kind of, they just kind of slogged off because of how cold it was. So, and then whoever stayed, stayed and we're Canadians. Uh, Was that a weird celebration? Like they're gone, but they're gone (laughs) because it's cold up here and no one really wants to be here. We needed as many people as we can get. I think is what I mean. So weird. Anyway, but yeah. So Canada. So America Day is really a weird Fourth of July. I still don't know how to greet people. Happy Fourth. Is that a thing? Happy Fourth of July. Oh, uh, you don't really need long. words. Just woo. Yeah, just and, shoot a gun in the yeah. air. And anyway, so yeah. So it's a little strange, but I'm getting. It's every. I'm understanding a little bit more. And uh, but yeah, it just made me want to go read more history. That's funny because as I study classical education and classical learning, I find that I'm actually becoming more festive. Like I get more into the spirit of holidays and I get more into celebration just they're because holy days. Yeah. And mirth is a thing and the alignment of emotion with reality and just moral edgy. Uh, there's a whole lot of thinking going into it, but no, what it really good. comes down to is 
I get more excited about holidays. Because when I was young, I used to be like, that's just one more day like any other day. And I would think that the the routine was not worth anything. But liturgies are worth something. And celebration is worth something. And, yeah. and doing things on specific days is and to have anticipation leading up to it, I think, is important. It's really important. Yeah. So I've, I've got into the spirit of Christmas and last night the fourth more than ever. As, That's good. As I get older, which is weird. That's fun. I guess my teens were a bit of a lull. Like I had a great time as a kid, and then as a teenager, I was just a sack of bummers. Many are. <laughs> Many teens are. A little apathetic. We're, which we're working to Yeah, we're working to solve. And if you're one of those apathetic teens, then... Just let loose. Yeah. But not in an irresponsible way. Just like in a... Festive, mirthful way. Yeah. Like in the Middle Ages. That's not going to inspire anybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know anybody who stands up at like... A club party is like, let's all get mirthful and celebratory <laughs> in an appropriately responsible way. That's right. That's um, going medieval also has its own like implication. Its own. Uh, I'm gonna go medieval on this. But that just brings up violence exactly. when really it would have been like everyone be charitable. Yeah, and <laughs> let's all and, be charitable uh, with each other. Flower crowns and that kind of thing. Anyway, what yeah. are we talking about today? Okay, it? so today we're gonna talk about the Iliad a little bit, and this is one of those books that's hard to tackle if you're not, if you're not guided through it. That is a classical thing I should know, it sounds like. It's a classical thing you should know, and you should really read it, but I encourage you to read a guide, read SparkNotes, talk to someone, an educator who is well-versed in the mythology. Or listen to your awesome podcast of the the background story of the inviting discord to your wedding. Yeah, and you can even follow reading guides a little bit, because there's, there are some chapters in there that that would ring a little weird to the modern reader, especially, I think it's chapter two, The Great Gathering of Armies. They just list a whole bunch of men and then the men under them. And their boats. And, and their boats. And all of these men are going to die. And it's, it is a waste of your time to the modern reader, typically. But to the ancient reader, this would be people we know. It'd be like, or, or at least people from where we are. And so it'd be a bard coming to my town and telling a story. And he would put in people like George Washington and... I know that guy. Yeah, and Beyonce and my grandfather. And I'm like, I know all of these people. It's fantastic. And, you know, it would hit the audience in a different way. Is it like when the rock and roll band is like, how are you doing, Cleveland? And we're like, we're in Cleveland. He knows Cleveland. Yeah, we all get really excited. It's the same sort of thing. But to the modern reader, it seems awfully strange to spend a chapter on it. Mm -hmm. Right. So things just ring a little bit weird if you don't have a little bit of guidance. And... So a little bit of guidance is what I'm going to try to give you today. And I'll give you a basic synopsis of the book and then a little bit about chapter 22, which I have my own ideas about. So the basic story of the Iliad, and it happens near the end of the war. I think it's in the ninth or 10th year of war. I should probably know that, but it's it's right at the end. I think it's the, the ninth year. Um, which is hilarious that in the ancient world, that's considered like a long war. And nowadays, <laughs> we're like, that's... Pretty par for the course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess in the ancient world, like it was just slaughter real fast and you picked up done. the pieces and you were done. But the the great gates of Troy, which I mentioned in a previous podcast, kept the armies on the beaches and they just had these long skirmishes and it was terrible and hot and there were lice and they didn't have a lot of food and it just wasn't, it was not a great place to Being be. Being on a beach for nine years does not Just fun. not, it was not awesome. So much sand. Yeah. So much sand. And so 
we we skip over a big piece of the war. And there are little things that maybe you need to know, like when they first landed on the beaches, the Greek D-Day, Achilles did some pretty amazing things. He killed a son of Poseidon named Cycnus, who was impervious. You could shoot arrows at him and they would just bounce off. And he's like, yeah, I wear this armor for show, so I don't know what you guys are trying to do. And Achilles actually gets really confused about it. He's like, maybe my arm grew weak. He turns and he stabs another guy and he's like, no, that still works fine. <laughs> I kid you not. That's what he actually does. He turns and he's like, Drip, well, no, that's still working. And then hucks that same spear oh, that, that he just stabbed guy. another guy with at Psychnus and it bounces off, but it leaves the blood from that other fellow on Psychnus because mm-hmm. the bounce. And Achilles gets really excited. He's like, ah, I gotcha. And Psychnus is like, no, you, you didn't. I'm still fine. What happens is Achilles ends up beating him in the face with the hilt of his sword and, and bending him over rock until the guy's throttled and smothered. Jeez. Yeah. So Achilles, the ancient world would have known as a renowned warrior before the Iliad, right? He, he, had, he was a very storied person. But there was a prophecy about him. And the prophecy was, if he goes to Troy and becomes glorious, if he gains glory, he will die young, right? His glory comes hand in hand with his death. And if he doesn't, then he'll live a long, peaceful, but anonymous life, right? He can go home, he will have a happy family, he'll have a wife, he'll be success, you know, relatively successful, but he will go down with no glory. So glory and death or anonymity and happiness is kind of his choice. Hmm. So at the beginning of the book, and here's the basic synopsis, uh, King Agamemnon and Achilles get into a little bit of a tiff and... They make Agamemnon give a girl back that he had stolen for a prize. I'll try not to go into too many details here. And he says, well, fine, I'll give her back, but I, the greatest king of all, am not going to go without my prize. So I'm going to come take one from one of you guys. And Achilles says, hey, that's kind of a bad idea. I don't know of any extra girls hanging around or any extra loot or anything. So just wait, we'll take Troy and then you can have whatever you want. Yeah, you can have whatever you want. And Agamemnon, he's a bit of a hothead and he says, fine, I'm not just going to take any prize. I'm going to take your prize. Her name is Briseis. So don't, don't, uh, when the king's mad, don't offer us advice. Yeah. Well, the strange thing is they are all kings in their own right. Mm-hmm. It's just that Agamemnon is the greatest king. Achilles commands his own men, right? He is a king in his own right. Remember, it's a loose connection of islands. It's not like they have one king that rules all. Gotcha. It's just that Agamemnon happens to be the biggest and best, so he gets to be in charge. Uh, so he decides to take Briseis, Achilles' girl. And this isn't, if you've ever seen the movie Troy, it's not that Achilles was desperately in love with her. In fact, it's not, she is not the really big deal. The big deal is that this, this council happens in front of all the other kings and, the, and all the other men who wanted to attend. So there would have been men of rank and file standing around sort of watching this happen. And he has been slighted by another king. His glory and honor has been besmirched because that king stomped in and took his prize. And so Achilles says, fine. And what he first wants to do is just hack off his head right there. Achilles begins to draw his sword and Athena speeds down and says, hey, don't do that. We like both of you. So you can't, you're not allowed to kill this guy. And Achilles gets really mad and says, fine, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit at my tents and do nothing. And when you guys are losing, you're going to want me back. And at that time, I'll come back to the fight. When you yourself come back to me and say, Achilles, please come back. We want you. We need you. You're the best. And my glory is again regained. Then I'll come back to the fight. It's a little petty. Did the Greeks think that was petty or did the Greeks think that that was uh, uh, justified? Uh, I think I think it's weird. You have to put yourself in that same situation. Glory in that age was the 
of the utmost importance, mm-hmm. right? We, I think we think of it less so now, but mm-hmm. you wanted to be glorious and then you wanted your sons to be even more glorious than you. And Achilles was a demigod. He had expectations around him already. And to be dressed down by another king in front of your own men, it'd be like for us having the principal come in and then insult your teaching in front of your class. And take away your Christmas uh, present, like your Christmas bonus or something. Or, or maybe one, some of your favorite books. He's like, these three lamps, I'm gonna take these three lamps and you're gonna sit there because I'm the principal and you're a teacher. While the class is going on, all your kids are there. Exactly, cool. and that's, that's not okay. And so you say, fine, you can do that. I'm not gonna teach cool. and we're gonna strike and then when you want me back, I'll come back. So it's, it sounds really, really petty, uh, but it's less petty than you think. Now, the next part is a little embarrassing, but... That's not petty. I'm all fired up. Yeah. The next thing that Achilles does is he goes and sits on the beach and he cries to his mom, Thetis. Oh, that's a little less. Who's the hot nymph. And if you remember... With the ankles. Yeah, with the glistening ankles and the lovely feet that everyone loves. And if you remember, Zeus has a bit of a thing for her. Oh, that's right. Remember? Mm-hmm. That's why he had to marry her off. And so she goes up and she asks oh. Zeus. She says, hey, Zeus, can you do me a favor? Because Achilles says, mom, they're so mean to me and they took my prize and it's so bad. He actually does cry. And so she says, it's okay, honey. And this is probably a bad example of motherhood. She should she should have said, you know, sit here and eventually they'll get it back. But she does whatever her son requests. Mm. So she goes up and she says, Zeus, will you please make the Greeks lose? And that, that's where my students seem to think that Achilles crosses the line and he's, is he prays for the deaths of his own team. Uh, but he didn't, the mom did. Yeah, but he, he, he wants them to lose. Oh, I see. He asks her to, you know, make this happen. And so she goes up, she asks Zeus, and Zeus says, look, if Hera sees you, I'm in huge trouble. So I'm just going to say yes, and we'll make this happen. But we got to keep it on the down low. Wow. So he shakes his head. And it's a really cool image in the Iliad, because when he shakes it, shock waves come out from his head. Mm-hmm. Like it's a thunderclap when he says yes. All right. So that's what, st- what happens. Over the next okay. several books, it's a little bit back and forth. The Greeks win for a time, and then the Trojans... There, there's a turn of, of the tide, and the Trojans stomp all the way back to the Greek lines. And what Achilles had said is, when they reach the walls, I'll fight. Or when they re- reach the ships, and they reach the ships. And then he says, when they f- set fire to the ships, and eventually they set fire to the ships. And he has, by this time, as he sits on the beach, decided, it's not worth it. Like, I want to go home. There's a section in, in book nine when they've sent an envoy to Achilles to get him to come back. There's... Uh, three men, so Ajax, Phoenix, and Odysseus. Great, great speakers all. And each one kind of appeals to him on, on a different level. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get him to come back. They're saying, hey, we need you, we're losing. And that's the moment that Achilles was waiting for. Mm. But he has plunged himself so deeply in his anger that he can't let it go. And not only that, but he says, look, no wealth. You're offering all this wealth. And it is wealth upon wealth. It's it's one of the greatest treasure hoards ever heard of. He says, it's not it's not worth my life. Like, no glory is worth a man's life. Mm-hmm. And no matter how hard I work, everyone just ends up in Hades anyway. It's mm-hmm. the same prize. So I don't know why I'm doing all this. So I'm going to sail home. Like, that's my plan. So he sends the envoy off with the intention of sailing home. So Achilles decides he's going to take the simple life and die forgotten and, like, live happy. And live happy because the, the the glory and the money and all of that does not seem as attractive to him as it once d- did. But something tells me that it doesn't end that way. It doesn't end that way. So what happens is Patroclus, Achilles' very, very good friend. And there are... Isn't he his cousin? Uh, are they related? That's from the movie, I think. Oh, I do dang. not believe they're related. I mean, I've uh, I've read the book. <laughs> I also saw the movie. It's pretty bad. Yeah, and in the movie, it's great because Patroclus is. I, I'm sure they plucked that that actor straight off the beach because he's like, we can't just sail away. 
you gotta go save our bros. Like he's got the long hair. It's really We live in gnarly times. Yeah. <laughs> so Grammar's referencing a YouTube video of this guy who goes up in front of a city council and asks them to make a statue of what's his Paul name? Walker. Paul Walker. And the first thing he's a like, hero we, of live, we live I come before you in gnarly times. <laughs> anyway. We'll put maybe we'll put a link to it in the yeah. in the show notes or something. Down below. It's pretty great. You should watch it. It's a great example of rhetoric. <laughs> anyway, uh, he so Patroclus in the in the film, if you've ever seen the film, is sort of this young, inexperienced, taught by Achilles. He's not that scary. And that is not the Patroclus we meet in the book. They are great friends. They've been friends for a long time. And Patroclus, with the full knowledge of Achilles, dons Achilles' armor and then enters the fray. He dons Achilles' armor partially to inspire the troops and maybe scare the Trojans because they might think it's Achilles, but they only do so for a short while. After a while, everyone knows that it's Patroclus. Everyone knows that that's what's going on. And your sins will find you out eventually. Exactly. And in in the movie, Achilles is surprised. He can't believe that Patroclus would go off back to war. But in in the book, he says, look, you can go to war, but with a couple of rules. We don't want you running into the gods, and we know they like Troy, so... Do not try to take Troy. You can fight him off the ships, but you come right back. Gotcha. Right? That's your thing. And don't you take Troy because it would steal my own glory. That's for me, not for you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. But I thought he had decided he was going to go home. I think he still was. Oh, man. But it's, it's still... There's a lot going on inside Achilles. Yeah, Achilles has a lot of feelings. Anyway, so Patroclus heads out, and he does so well that he almost takes Troy by himself, and he decides to do it which goes against the wishes of Achilles and maybe flaunts a little bit the power of the gods. And that that armor will go straight to your head. Yeah, it will. So what happens is uh, Apollo comes down and smacks him on the back and knocks his armor off and his helmet off. And he's standing there completely dazed after being God slapped. God slapped. And then uh, another guy comes up and goes boop and stabs him in the back and then sort of runs off. uh, I think his name is Euphorbus. And he's like, I got him, and now I'm scared! And then runs off, you know, hoping that Patroclus doesn't wheel on him and kill him. Mm-hmm. And then last comes Hector. Mm. And Hector finishes him off. And Hector's the greatest warrior and paragon of Troy. He is... And a good the, dad. He's a good dad. He's a good husband. We are, in the book, made to sort of love this man. There's even a Kodak moment where he's sort of tossing his baby with his wife on the walls. And he's he's pious. He does his job. He loves the gods. He works hard for his city. And he's tied to his glorious name and the glory of his state. I love the scene where and then he puts on the helmet to go off to war and his wife's like, don't go to war. He's like, baby, I have to. My brother needs me. And then he puts on the helmet and it kind of scares his kid and the kid starts crying. Yeah, well, he, the, the helmet was on first and the kid's like, ah, and he's like, oh, oh. He, so he pops oh, off the helmet and, and, then, and the baby gets happy. His data. So they all stay together. Oh. And his wife does say, you have to, you know. Oh, she says you have to go support your brother. Well, she she always is begging him to stay and yeah. not fight. And he's like, he, his response is typically, I would die of shame to face the men mm. of Troy if I would stay here now. Man, Hector, what a guy. He really is. He's, That's awesome. And his brother Paris is just the most sneveling, you know, little weasel ever. Yeah. He's very vain. And at one point he gives a challenge and then backs down from it. And Hector just says, you're the worst. <laughs> like, you're the worst brother ever. I wish you were never born. You should accept this challenge or you embarrass all of us. And Paris is like, fine, fine, but... Don't insult my beauty. It's I didn't choose. I didn't choose to be. But even in the midst of all those things, there's not something that Paris can do that's going to break Hector's sense of duty to back up and honor his brother. Yeah. Right. Like Hector is going to die, even if Paris is not worth dying for. Hector is thoroughly lovable through and through. Mm-hmm. There's a reason that 
the Romans, which would come far later, are excited about claiming their lineage from Troy. Because mm. in the Iliad, even though it focuses on the Greeks, mm-hmm. the real lovable side are the Trojans. They're they're great people. All except for Paris. He's the worst. Mm-hmm. Everyone hates Paris. There's one in every city. Except for some of my ninth grade girls. They'd love him because he's beautiful. No. Well, that is a very ninth grade girl thing. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, Hector comes out of this looking really good, and Achilles comes out looking a little bit whiny and emotional. All right, so Patroclus has just been killed by... Patroclus is just killed. Uh, The great war horses of Achilles know that this has happened, and they weep for the dead Patroclus. I mean, your horse is crying. Yeah, they're immortal. It's awesome. And they weep big horse tears for this dead man. And then Achilles hears of it and just loses it. And he has this moment of clarity where he says, my anger has blinded me, essentially. This anger and this strife has brought such ruin upon my brother and upon myself and upon all of these people. But then the clouds, you know, the sun breaks through, but the clouds slam back together and he immediately redirects that anger towards Hector and says, all right, I will go meet Hector. And this plunges him back into the fray, even though he was planning on not returning to battle. This is the thing that prompts him to do so. Hmm. So he returns to battle and... Uh, but he's, his armor is lost because the armor that Patroclus was wearing has been claimed by Hector, which is a dishonor to Achilles, right? Mm-hmm. So Achilles' nice armor is now Hector's. So he has to go to Hephaestus and he gets brand new godlike armor. It's fantastic. And he's the ugly god, right? Yeah, he's the ugly smith That's god. That's married to Aphrodite. Aphrodite. <laughs> I love that. He's like working away in his forge and he's the ugliest god and the most beautiful god is married and... And I, oh man, I love this part because it's one of the first instances of robotic help. He has some some girls that he made out of metal that sort of run around and help him at the oh, forge. Oh, cool. So it's like sci-fi. There's a little bit of sci-fi in there. Hmm. Anyway, he, they go to the forge. Uh, his mom has some new armor made for him. And the chapter right before the one I want to focus on is all about Achilles' shield. And on the shield is worked the entirety of their known cosmos, which I could talk about for a while. But... It's their whole cosmos plus two cities, and one is well-ordered, full of justice, and the other one is in strife. And those so this two... is what Hephaestus stamped on his shield, or, well, yeah. or put into, like, uh, etched into Achilles' giant shield. Yeah, and strangely enough, Homer spends an entire chapter on it, and it's a weird thing to spend so much time on the images on a shield if it didn't carry any more, carry any more weight than that. So he he works all of these images into it, and there's people dancing, and there's a harvest festival, and there's... Presumably in the happy city. Yeah, and there's justice, and there's a marriage, and there, there are all of these things happening on his shield. Mm. And so it has not only the universe, but two cities. And these two cities reflect Troy, the well-ordered and peaceful city, and Greece, which is a city always at strife. So these two cities are surrounded by the cosmos. And so it's like the entirety of the known world, all of it worked into Achilles' shield. So you have like the healthy way of living, uh, the way that humans ought to live with one another. And then you have the the discord way of living, the, the, the way of living that is all messed up and, and twisted around. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to read too much into the juxtaposition there, what's more important is that they reflect the two cities Mm. and that when Achilles re-enters battle, that shield gets slung on his back. Mm -hmm. So on Achilles' back rests the entirety of the known universe. What happens in this next chapter will determine the fates of these two cities. Gotcha. Right, so he re-enters the battle and he goes to the walls and he starts hollering for Hector and Hector, you know, Sorry, I'm thinking the movie. So Hector stands out in front of the walls, awaiting the arrival of Achilles. 
And Achilles comes on like the morning star. He is all glory, which remember, the moment Achilles chooses glory, it comes hand in hand with his death. Mm-hmm. And Achilles know that, knows this. He knows that this moment is essentially his suicide. So he comes on and Hector has sort of this crisis of, of self. He's, he's standing there and he thinks, maybe I could go back in the walls. Well, no, I can't because I would die of shame. Mm-hmm. Right? So he's married to his own glory in a way. And then, then he thinks, maybe I can reason with Achilles. Maybe I can set my stuff down and say, you know, you can take... You can take Helen and that's fine and we'll carve her up and we'll, we won't hide anything and you can take any loot you want, just leave our city. Carve her up? Oh, sorry, uh, carve up the wealth of Troy. Oh, gotcha. Um, so take Helen and carve up the wealth of Troy. That came out weird. He's getting a little like a book of judges here for a second. Sorry, yeah. I, I, there's a lot to keep in the head, uh, keep in my head. So he, he thinks that he can reason with Achilles and then he looks at Achilles and he's like, oh, no, never mind, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And he is so shaken by the picture of the oncoming Achilles in all of his glory that all he can do is run. So he, Hector runs? Yeah, he runs. Oh, jeez. He runs three times around the city, pursued by Achilles. Hmm. And Achilles keeps him from going close to the walls, keeps him from running back to his friends, and makes sure that the Greeks don't take pot shots at him when he's running around, because he wants hmm. Hector for himself. He wants this glory. And the gods say, should we save him, or should we let him die? And Zeus's scales come up, and Hector's is overweighted, and it's decided that Hector has to die. So they take their support from him. Apollo was helping him run. And then uh, Athena goes down to trick him into turning, into turning around. She pretends to be one of his brothers mm. and says, hey, I'm here to help you. Let's fight this guy together. And he says, all right. Hey, sweet. And he turns around, thinks he has a brother at his hand and decides to fight Achilles. And there's some words exchanged. And uh, Hector throws his spear and doesn't get him. Achilles throws his spear, also a wasted shot, but Athena passes the spear back to Achilles. Mm. So Achilles has his spear returned while Hector is essentially defenseless. So what has happened to Achilles' old armor at this point? So Achilles' old armor is being worn by Hector. Thanks for bringing that up. So Hector is donning Achilles' old war gear, which, you know, if you know soldiers, their war gear is almost like their hands, right? It's, It's a big part of their person. So the, the last image is Achilles jumping and descending like a hawk on Hector. And because he knows his own armor, he knows the weakness and he jabs his spear and finishes off Hector. And then he gets, it gets really dark and Achilles and his buddies start maiming Hector's corse, corpse, which is incredibly shameful, even in that time period. Don't they drag him around behind a horse? Well, they, they stab him a bunch first. Oh, it's, it's pretty bad. And then they drag him around behind a horse. So the Discord City won. So the Discord City wins and they ransack Troy. It's, it's kind of tragic. But what I talk about with my students when I talk about this chapter is, is some of the s- symbolic significance here. And I, I, don't, I haven't read this anywhere else. This is my own conclusions about the chapter. So take this with a grain of salt, I guess. But if you step back, say 300 yards, when you see Achilles and Hector fighting, what you see is old Achilles, right, in his old armor, versus new glorious Achilles. And the new glorious Achilles is one that has, is married to his glory and his own death, right? And the moment when he kills Hector, the very moment when that spear takes Hector out, he is killing off his chance for a wonderful, peaceful life with a family. And when we look back in the book, we find that that is exactly what Hector has had the whole time. Mm. Hector has been living the life that Achilles, when he kills Hector, is refusing, right? Hector had peace, he had a wife, 
He had children. He had the respect of his family. He had the respect of his countrymen. And all of these things Achilles could have had, but when he murders Hector, he shuts that door forever. And so really, what we see in this chapter is a microcosm for the whole of the Iliad. It's Achilles at war with himself, and he is through the entire book, and with the fate of the world resting upon his shoulders, right? Will he re-enter the war or not? If he does, it means the downfall of Troy because Hector is killed. If he doesn't, then he will live in uh, anonymity by himself, being non-notable, but being incredibly peaceful. And so that's what's happening on Achilles' side. When he kills Hector, he's essentially killing the opportunity for that life. He's killing himself, the old Achilles. Mm. And when Hector meets Achilles, he, it's, it's his own glory that kills him, right? He could have re-entered the walls, but he, it was the possibility of shame that kept him standing outside of them, mm. right? I, I would die of shame to face the men of Troy. And so when he steps back inside the walls, it is, or when he refuses to step back inside the walls, it is his own thirst for glory that kills him. And if Achilles is the representation of glory, if he is glory incarnate, then it is glory that kills Hector ultimately, or the thirst for glory. Hmm. So, like I said, in that we see a microcosm of the book. Hector and his end come because he is married to and overcommitted to glory, probably. And Achilles solidifies and seals his own fate the moment he kills Hector. And it shows that he is at war with himself as he is in the entire book. And so for me, book 22 is probably the most important book of the entire mm-hmm. Iliad, right? It has, it has everything in miniature. Cool. That, and the, uh, that, uh, that's awesome. So the shields of Achilles, I know, is like a big symbol that gets carried forward in lots of of different stories and poems. In fact, one of my favorite poems by W.H. Auden is called The Shield of Achilles, and he's writing in the midst of sort of when uh, Europe is overrun by fascism, and he's rethinking um, what the shield would look like, and he's looking at, and he's, he's describing the discord, the city of discord that's kind of, he's describing fascist mm. Europe at that time, and, um, and he's got this sort of, this uh, scary sense that... Um, Hopefully, this sort of discorded way of humanity organizing itself does not win, um, um, but he's sort of concerned that it's going to. It's an awesome, it's an awesome poem. But it, that's a that's a that feels like a very loaded uh, imagery of this shield that sort of doesn't have much. I mean, you can pick it apart, but kind of like last podcast, you also kind of just need to contemplate it. Just let it let this idea of this sort of overarching metaphor. It has so much weight, and the more that you read the book. And, and sort of understand and, and um, know the hearts and minds of these characters, the sort of the more um, that symbol can, or that metaphor can kind of um, sort of, yeah, be a rich thing. Yeah, and that's why the Iliad is so rich. It's not because there is a puzzle to unlock once. It's mm-hmm. that all of the characters are eminently human. And if you let them sort of dwell for a while, each becomes an ex- both an example and a warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen is a woman beset by her own beauty and abused by that sort of danger. And we've all met girls like that. And I, and I know exactly how that feels. (laughs) (laughs) It's a curse. And then Hector is the dutiful older brother who has like a doofus younger brother. Yeah. And maybe gives too many concessions to him. Mm. If he would have killed Paris straight away and given Helen back, how many lives would have been saved? Um, And then we have Paris who is overcaught in his vanity and loves women too much and is not responsible. And 
Achilles being the one of the most complex, right? He's plunged into grief and anger and then eventually supersedes it and then is bound to his fate in a complex way. He is, he is both an example and a warning in several ways. Hmm. I don't think the Greeks saw him as merely a glorious example, right? You could always point to different parts of his life and, and think about the choices that you had. And that's the choice I talk about with my students, right? Glory often comes with the price of risk and peace often comes with anonymity, right? So are you seeking after the glorious life, AJ, or are you, com- are you comfortable with the life of anonymity and mirth? I think the Greeks would have said risk and glory is better, but I think the majority of Christian tradition would say peace and anonymity because it is better because the real fame and true glory is found with your creator, right? Fame with men has no lasting significance. And this is what Achilles found, finally figured out while he was sitting on the beach. This isn't worth it. And no, when he finds out in hell, right? When Odysseus goes to him in book 11 and the Odyssey and talks to Achilles, Achilles right. is like, you know what sucks? Everything I did. Yeah, I, it, it wasn't worth it. He's like, live. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you live in anonymity. Do not seek glory. It's not worth it. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, Odysseus fanboys for a second. He's like, oh man, Achilles, you're the greatest. You must live it up down here. And Achilles <laughs> says, no, nah, man, it stinks down here. Hell's the worst. It's just sad and dusty and everyone's a wraith and it's horrible. You should, you know, cling to life while you have it, even if you're, even if you're a slave. The really arresting line is, I would rather be a slave of a man on earth or, than king over all the breathless dead. Hmm. Uh, I don't think that's verbatim, but it's, you know, the gist. Mm-hmm. Satan in Paradise Lost inverts that. He's like, screw that noise. I want to be the king of the dead. I would rather be the, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven and sing forest hallelujahs. But we'll have to do a Milton podcast another time. Yeah. Having glory with the creator is something C.S. Lewis talks about in The Weight of Glory. And it's also something he mirrors in his book, The Great Divorce, which is when there's a woman who gets paraded through heaven, he's like, oh man, was she famous? And he's like, man, you never heard of Clara from 82B or whatever. And it's just a woman who prayed her whole life and was kind to everyone and changed everyone who came by her door. And she was anonymous on earth, but that's the real glory. But the real glory is with your creator, which I think cool. Christian tradition would bear out. Awesome, man. That's good stuff. So I'm not gonna, I I didn't, I I wrote the whole, (laughs) (laughs) no, but you like unpacked it for, or you like presented it. I'm not going to, I'm going to stop my seeking, my glory seeking ways and seek to live a quiet and unremarkable life. Is that going to change a lot of things for you? No, not really. So it feels like that's what you've been doing for a while. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's probably true. Cool, man. Yeah, same thing I'm going to do. So listeners, yeah, you have a choice before you as everyone does. Glory and risk or anonymity and peace. And don't let rage overwhelm you. Yeah, and if you're going to go into battle, you should at least have some sweet looking armor. Yeah. And a backup pair, apparently. Yeah, and a, and a backup <laughs> pair. Backups are important. <laughs> All right, uh, that's it for us. This is Classical Stuff You Should Know. I'm AJ Hanenberg. And Graham Donaldson, signing off. Yeah, uh, if you want to send us some emails, we'll put the link somewhere that you can find it. Yep. And uh, we'll try to answer as many as we can. Cool. All right, thanks, and see you next time. Bye.